0: Hi, my name is Lindsay Smallwood, and I'm so glad to be joining you this week as we continue our summer sermon series. As some of you might know, I'm a middle school teacher, which means that since it's June, I'm on summer break, summer break, and that means I've had a lot more time for fun things like being outside, going to the pool, and also watching junk TV. And one of those uh, shows that my husband and I really enjoyed last month is a show called Jury Duty. Now, the show is filmed mockumentary style, sort of like The Office or Parks and Recreation, but with a twist. Eleven of the jurors and all of the judges and attorneys and clients are actors paid to be there and given like rough scripts from which they improvise. But one juror is not an actor. He's just a guy named Ronald. And he thinks that he's a small part of a documentary that's being made about jury duty and the trial system. The magic of the show comes in watching how Ronald, who's this average guy, he's not a hero, he doesn't think he's the main character. And we see how he holds up against the chaos and the forced awkwardness and the induced hilarity that the actors are trying to spin all around him. Our sermon series this morning is a taste of that same idea. We're looking at big events and important stories in the Bible this summer, but instead of retelling the more familiar pieces or focusing on the well-known heroes of the Bible, we're zooming in on the minor players, the people whose stories may or may not be as familiar to us. These are people who definitely didn't think that they were main characters. Their are mothers. And brothers, midwives, and slaves, shepherds, and refugees. This spring, as a church, we talked a lot about being the family of God. And as we come together over the next few weeks to uh, think about some of these stories, I hope that uh, it will feel like being drawn into a family story. I don't know if you've ever had the experience where after a holiday meal, maybe one of the uncles teases your grandmother about some event in the past, and then grandma raises her finger and says, no, that's not how it was, and begins to tell her own version of the story. And everybody around the table sort of leans in to learn a bit more about their beloved ones. And you, gathered here, are God's beloved family. And as a community who gathers around a sacred book, these stories that we're gonna be telling are your stories, these are your biblical ancestors. And so join me this morning as we begin by uh, turning in the book of Exodus, starting in chapter one. Now Joseph and his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly and increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby's a boy, kill him but if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women. They're vigorous. They give work birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared god he gave them families of their own then pharaoh gave this order to the people every hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the nile but let every girl live this is the word of the lord now having heard this first part of the story let's go back and look in detail at what the author of exodus is telling us now first off we have the hebrew people and uh, a long time ago, a few generations ago, uh, Joseph had been a leader in Egypt and he had brought his family over. That's the genesis, the beginning of who the Hebrew people are. They're Joseph's family. And when they first came over, this was a great deal because they have been living in famine where they were. And when they come to live in Egypt, they have all their needs supplied for them there. And so they live in the sort of southern part of the area where the Egyptians are. But now, a few generations later, as we see in the beginning, uh, things are not going as well for them. And there's this phrase, a phrase that makes Pharaoh really mad, but I hope it caught your attention. It says in the text that the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful and multiplying. And if that phrase sounds familiar to you, it should. It's the command that God gives the first people in the garden, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And it's echoed later in God's promises to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Now, the author of Exodus is setting up here the primary conflict in this book, in in these verses. The The Israelites are fruitful and multiplying, and Pharaoh hates their growth. He is fearful of their thriving. In fact, He goes so far as to uh, rally public support for his hatred by making it a national security issue. What if war breaks out? We've got all these foreigners at the southern border. But the more that Pharaoh tries to stop their growth, the more fruitful they are. So Pharaoh makes them his slaves, and even that doesn't work. So he comes up with another plan and he calls Shipra and Pua the midwives for the Hebrews. Now, the author does something really interesting here. Uh, Pharaoh, it's not a name, it's like a title, the way we would use maybe king or president. Literally, it means great house, referring to the great house of the empire. And this particular Pharaoh is never named, right? In the text, he's only Pharaoh, a figurehead for the evil that's oppressing God's chosen people. But the women, Shipra and Pua, are called by name. And here is that jury duty moment where the lens of scripture finds itself focused not on the head of the empire or the big drama of the day, but on two women who will quietly defy it. When Pharaoh tasks them with uh, helping to kill uh, newborn babies, Shipra and Pua uh, refuse. In fact, they fully ignore their instructions, even lying to Pharaoh in order to confuse his plan. They tell him that the Hebrew babies just come too quickly. But the text tells us that that's not the case. That, in truth, the midwives let the boys live because they feared the Lord. They did what was right. And there are times in life when a special kind of courage is called for, to ignore laws that bring harm in order to live according to God's law of love. In our national history as a country, there are many examples of times when people have had to stand up to unjust laws. My seventh graders and I read the book Hidden Figures this year. Uh, it's a biography about African-American women who were mathematicians and scientists, and they lived and worked during the struggle for civil rights in the 1950s and 60s. And the author weaves their stories of overcoming workplace discrimination and uh, all these barriers that were set up for their success with the larger story of segregation and discrimination that was happening across the country at that time. It. Um, Featured The women that are featured there they didn't take no for an answer, and they pressed through many intense difficulties in order to use their gifts for the common good. Standing up to empire can look like feeding the homeless after your city outlaws it. In fact, in some places today, even in California, local laws have been passed prohibiting generosity to the unhoused, and those who wish to follow the command of Jesus to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, have had to risk fines and even arrest to help those who desperately need it. Kelly Nicondeya, in her book Defiant, What the Women of Exodus Teach Us About Freedom, says it this way, In this seminal incident in Exodus with the Hebrew midwives, we see that fearing God can look like lying to the powers that sponsor death. Fearing God requires acute discernment mastery of wits, and some subversive strength. It is possessing the nerve to stand up to the pharaohs of our day and their policies that promote death, their refusal to offer sanctuary to refugees fleeing conflict zones, their attempts to withhold health care from those who need it, their expansion of private prisons that feed on men of color at high rates and rob them of years with their family and community. Shipra and Pua say no to the death-dealing empire in which they live. And scripture tells us that because they feared God and did what was right, God gave them families of their own. Frustrated, Pharaoh then enlists the entire society in his genocidal plan. If the midwives won't do it, all Egyptians then are told to drown the Hebrew baby boys in the Nile. And it is just as that edict goes out that a particular baby boy is born. The story continues in Exodus 2. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. She placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby, nurse him for me and I'll pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. A baby boy is born into a world where baby boys are being drowned in the river. His mother, who the text later tells us is named Jochebed, hides him for three months. And if you ever had a newborn, you know that's no small thing to keep them quiet and out of sight. But what else could she do? She's his mother. That baby is all of her love and heart wrapped up in tiny blankets. And then finally, when he gets too big and she has no choice, she puts him in the river but not to drown him, she takes her beloved little baby and tucks him into a waterproof basket and hopes. Jacobed does absolutely everything she can do and then she has to step back and hope. Her daughter watches all of this. Miriam, the author of Exodus later gives us her name. Miriam sees the slow-motion tragedy that's unfolding, but she doesn't stop paying attention. She stays present to the tragedy. She's ready to intervene. Miriam waits and watches and wonders what will happen to her baby brother. And it's here that we meet Pharaoh's daughter. The author of Exodus tells us that she has compassion on the crying baby and draws him out of the water, and that Miriam, still watching, offers to take the baby and care for it, and the princess agrees. This daughter of immense privilege, who was commanded by her own father to kill this child, who could have just ignored that baby in apathy, instead decides to intervene, to act on the baby's behalf. And not only that, but to name him and support him and give him every privilege that she herself enjoyed. You know, as we tell these stories, it's a bit ironic that Pharaoh, in trying to protect his empire, commanded the death of all the baby boys. But he wasn't worried about the little girls. He said they could live but at every turn, it's the women in the story that thwart his evil intentions. Now, of course, the main character of the Exodus story, the foil for Pharaoh's wickedness, is going to be this baby, Moses. It's Moses who will speak for the people living as slaves under Pharaoh's harsh rule. It's Moses who will demand their freedom from Pharaoh. And it's Moses who will lead them out of slavery in Egypt through the parted waters of the Red Sea. But without Shipra and Pua's defiance, Moses would have been strangled. Without Jochebed's tender care, he would have been taken and killed. Without Miriam's watchful eye, he would have been lost. And without the daughter of Pharaoh's intervention, Moses would have been forgotten. Each of these women play a role, the deliverers of the deliverer. Scripture records them making hard choices to do the right thing when the moment called for it. And their courage sets the stage for the confrontation with empire that the Hebrew people will ultimately face on their long journey toward freedom. As we close and take some time to turn together and reflect on these stories, I'd like to offer you three things to consider. The first is this. You too live in the shadow of an evil empire. I don't mean our state or national government specifically, but I mean that we live our lives with an awareness that this world is broken in ways that we can't even fully comprehend. This is not the promised land. I don't have to tell you that. Like Pharaoh against the Hebrews, the the powers and the principalities of this world are against you. You feel it, I feel it. Life is hard, right? There's poverty and injustice and lack and sorrow all around us. We experience loss and disease and disaster and death. And some days it's hard just to go on in this world where we live. As I sat with the text that I've been studying these last few weeks, I kept thinking about those dead baby boys in the Nile River. It made me cold on the inside to picture it, to think of that kind of casual cruelty, that sort of throwing away of life at such a large scale. But we see it today in the world where we live too, and sin is the word for it, I think. In the Bible, it's, sin isn't just the things that individuals do wrong, I mean that's part of it, but it's also the sick systems that we find ourselves living inside us. A system that would allow babies to be tossed aside in a river. A system where the rich have many houses and the poor have none. A system that rewards greed over love. The biblical language for all of that is the fall. The fall. We dwell in a fallen kingdom in a world of sin and sin's effects touch all of us. We have a promise though, that in this world of sin, God is with us still. He sees us in our pain and in our joy. He knows our name and he calls us beloved. And here in the falling apart world, we can still hear the song of our true kingdom The song that sang the world into being that song of love echoes still. And despite all of the falling apartness that we see, there are also signs that love is breaking through, glimpses of beauty and truth and justice. And so here in the real world where we live, we are tasked with living as citizens of our true kingdom. The women in this story remind us that we have to keep our hearts in tune with the song of love. We can disregard the death-dealing ways of the empire we find ourselves in to follow the way of love. For Shipra and Pua, that looked like the courage to say no to the powers that be. For Jacobed, it was the courage to hope in the face of despair. For Miriam, It was the courage to speak up for the vulnerable. And for Pharaoh's daughter, it was the courage to use her power for good. Their lives, their stories, paved the way for God's deliverance for his people in Exodus. And our lives continue that story. We don't have to save the world or have some big mission or moment. We need only to love it and to live the lives that are given to us in our time with great courage and great love. Poet and author Wendell Berry says it this way, no matter how much you might love the world as a whole, you can only live fully in it by living responsibly in some small part of it. Be a faithful minister of God's love in your small part of the world, create beauty work for justice, pursue truth. Every time you respond to anger with kindness, when you choose generosity instead of selfishness, when you help even though you didn't have to, you tell God's story with your life. And God's story has a promise that the world won't always be like this. The gospel promises that deliverance is on the way. The good news of the gospel is this, that in the world of sin, God extends himself to us in Jesus. The love that sang the world into being entered into this world to show us what love really is. Jesus lived as one of us. He walked among us. He showed us what love is like. And when he refused to bow to the empire of his day, they executed him. But God raised him from the dead to life again. And the resurrection of Jesus is a first sign to a weary creation that the kingdom of love will someday again rule the whole earth. We who weep and work and wait for a world that we long for, we will be resurrected too. And Jesus will lead us into a new creation, a beautiful world of justice and joy, a promised land forever. In Romans 8, Paul talks about it this way. He says, the trials that we face in life, they're like labor pains before a baby is born. Paul compares all of us to pregnant women, saying that even as we suffer, we suffer knowing that deliverance is coming, that something wonderful is coming, that all of this pain is going to lead to joy. And somehow, in the resurrection power of God, all things, every good thing, every heartache, every single thing will work together for our good and God's glory. That is our hope. Deliverance is coming. And while we wait, we take courage, knowing that we are part of a long line of people who have learned how to love in the shadow of a fallen empire. In just a moment, you'll see some questions on your screen. And I encourage you, whether you're alone this morning and you want to uh, consider these in the quietness of your heart or whether there's a small group or a friend that you could spend some time talking with these about. But take some time to reflect on these stories, to reflect on the reminder that in a world that's falling apart, we have an unending kingdom of love that will last forever.